Edgard. Hello, Gregoire. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you. So, what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to try to talk about how we fail. How we fail when we try to do anything. I don't think that's <laughs> very... <laughs> I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> well, <laughs> what I mean is that we are going to try to talk about how interventions are necessarily failing in one aspect or the other. I see. So we're talking about the interventions we make during the analytic hour. I often wonder what would be the best intervention which of course doesn't have a strict answer and I as we will develop in during the podcast try to consider how minimal interventions might actually be more helpful than long ones that said after editing the podcast I realized that we didn't emphasize enough that we are not talking about the fact that we shouldn't talk at all mm-hmm we do talk to our patients we talk to our patients but i guess the goal of the podcast is really to try to emphasize how there is loss in any kind of intervention and that mm -hmm. we should consider that whenever we can and also to have a perspective that when possible try to minimize the impact of our intervention I guess that will become clear as we offer some examples during the podcast. But I agree with you. We're not saying that we are completely silent in the analytical hour. No, that's really not our point. No. So we will talk about uh, whether or not we should mm -hmm. to answer our patients. We will talk about masochism, how to leave space for ambivalence, how much do we need to assume, support and anxiety, how much we might want to have psychoanalysis as a complete form or science or expression. And then eventually we will go back to um, Ford's um, idea that um, a psychoanalysis is impossible and how actually to state it like that misses uh, an important part of uh, what Freud said. That said... If you want to uh, write to us, feel free to do so at discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me or Twitter, Facebook. We listen. <laughs> well, we read mostly. My name is Edgar Francisco Danielson. My name is Grégoire Pierre. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis.
one of the struggle that we have, I think, especially when we think about therapy or analysis on the long run, mm-hmm. is that we want our patients to feel like they can change their mind whenever they feel and that it won't question the therapeutic alliance. We mentioned that at the end of the last podcast. The last podcast. What I would like to bring here is a little discussion on how to achieve that regarding our reactions. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Hmm. The... (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So powerful, the... mm -hmm. I know. Wow. (laughs) It's a joke now, but... (laughs) We're going to become very serious with that very soon. Yeah. So why do I bring that up? Because I often wonder when I react to my patients, what is at that moment or in general the most appropriate reaction? And I found that when I say yes or no, or when I give actually a structured answer, it might be supportive, it might actually be at the time what should be said to help the therapy or the analysis to go on. But when someone says, it's so difficult, I don't know what to do. And you say, yes, it is so difficult. But it's supportive. Sometimes it's useful. Yes. But you might be more efficient by saying, mm-hmm, mm. or mm-hmm. I mean, let's be clear. There's no mm-hmm. one final good answer. <laughs> <laughs> because whatever you say, you will put of yourself in the answer. You yeah, will. of course. It's never going to be completely neutral. Mm, no. But the neutrality that Freud from the get-go suggested us to achieve, the benevolent neutrality, I feel like actually every time I turn things around, that the best answer still lacking in some ways is something along of uh-huh. what do you think if we want to understand what the patient means by this is too difficult let's say as an example then I foreclose the exploration when I say yes it is difficult then we are on the same page and the patient might think that that's everything we need to say about this statement but the mm-hmm or even the silence can be very supportive and open up the opportunity for the patient to tell us what is the difficult part of what they are saying. And I want to go further than that. Mm-hmm. And it's something we often, I found, put on the side in psychoanalysis because it's cruel and it's not nice. But it also can foreclose masochism. Can you expand? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now you will. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for trusting me on yeah, that. Of course. <laughs> what I mean is mm. that, and again, even me mentioning it now, I feel like this is so not something we should say. But still, clinically speaking, I had that, those thoughts regularly. Is that when someone tells you this is such a difficult situation, mm-hmm. on short therapies, you might not get to see that. No. But on the long run, you might see masochism appearing in everybody. Of course. Some people more than others, and some people less than others. Mm -hmm. But 
yeah, when the situation is difficult, how much of us is actually enjoying the situation, the specific difficulty of the situation? Mm -hmm. That's the joy of suffering. Yeah. So when you only side with, yeah, it's tough, man, or whoever you're talking to, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, this is not okay. We don't like suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not so much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in psychoanalysis, we need to keep in mind this strange part of human psyche is that we are not so, for lack of better expression, black or white in mm -hmm. terms of uh, our connection with pain. No, it's always more complex and therefore a, a yes or a no means that we're aligning with one of the psychic agencies of the mind if we think on that those freudian terms yeah, you know more like the superego in the, that the sense. superego or we are aligning with, with you know it depends on how we what the patient said and how we respond um, or we are aligning with the id or you know mm. so punctuating with i would say even with silence with the gaze on the patient allows us to begin to unpack what is happening here with suffering how is the patient navigating the reality of human suffering? What does pain mean to the patient? Pain and probably joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm um, so happy I'm mm -hmm. married. I'm so happy I have a child. I'm so happy. Okay, mm -hmm. let's keep some space for the mm -hmm. conflict. And at the same time, you don't want to be a douche. And we like uh, always cold and always... Um, or always contradicting the patient. Yeah. For example, the patient says, oh, I love my spouse so much. No, you, no, you don't. You, you don't. <laughs> 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 you keep saying that you love your spouse. I, I'm, I'm suspicious now. <laughs> this is not good technique. <laughs> no. What might be a good technique for a long-term treatment? <laughs> I mean, eventually, <laughs> eventually, say, you know. Could there be some ambivalence here? <laughs> but to allow the patient to not be scared. But my point was more about how do we act right away? Like when a patient is expressing an emotion, a point of view. And again, I'm going to mention that, yes, in certain situations... It seems like it's mm -hmm. appropriate to support, uh, to affirm what the patient is expressing, uh, him or her uh, experience of life. Mm. Again, I'm feeling I don't like that uh, old ladies are holding on their bag when I walk next to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sucks to be a black man in the U.S., mm -hmm. especially in the U.S. It sucks in other places, too. Mm-hmm. Because some people will see you and they will project onto you. That we can affirm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we need to affirm that at least at first. Because otherwise I don't see how the connection can start. But that implies to ask the patient a little bit more instead of jumping immediately into acknowledging the structural racism. Yeah, how would you do in this very unspecific example um, <laughs> <laughs> I would ask the patient what crossed his mind 
when he saw that. Because I don't know what crossed, I may have a hunch that what crossed his, her mind, their mind. But I, unless the patient tells me, I, I don't know. And the patient may not know. <laughs> How much in the therapy or in the analysis does the analyst need to actually assume? I think it's better not to assume. Don't we need to assume sometime? Well, or is yes. It, is, is it always bad to assume? No, I don't think it's bad to assume. I think it would be counterproductive to use our assumption and move our questions and interventions based on those assumptions. I think that would be terrible technique. But we have assumptions, right? We all have assumptions. Okay. The patient that comes to my office and says, oh, I found out that I'm pregnant. I knew the patient wanted to be a parent, but I w didn't want to assume in that moment. So I immediately said, how is that for you? And the patient said, I'm very confused. No joy, no sadness, confusion. So my thought that, oh, congratulations, you know, that would, <laughs> it would be the <laughs> would be the worst. <laughs> that would be the worst <laughs> intervention. So I said, well, how is that for you? And I'm very confused. How is this possible? I feel like there might be a difference with uh, problematics around racism, but let's go with the pregnancy thing. Mm -hmm. Because I remember now eight, nine years ago when I was still at TRCC, mm -hmm. I had two patients the same week who got pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I think the first one, the way she announced the pregnancy, mm -hmm. I said, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And then, how do you feel about it? Mm -hmm. The second one, the way she announced the pregnancy, yeah. I said, how is it for you? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't good. It was not good. Yeah. So maybe I picked up something in my patient, and that's why I went in that direction. I'm thinking that it's a possibility mm -hmm. that sometimes we do. Mm -hmm. Does it mean that I was? it was the best thing for me to say congratulations to the first one? I mean, today, I think I wouldn't do it again. Mm -hmm. Today, I think I would do right away, how is it for you? Mm -hmm. If they feel good about it, yeah, congratulations. It's mm -hmm. great. Uh, maybe at the end of the session. Correct. After you see how the session unfolded. Unfolds. And then you're like, okay, see you next week. and mm. Congratulations. Yeah. It's safer after 45 minutes to go to walk into those territories mm -hmm. because pregnancy can be loaded mm, with, with feelings. So many feelings and fears and conflict. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think today with more experience, I would, I would wait. And so, but is your reasoning that we should never actually uh, support a patient right away? What's your take? I'm being a being provocative, but just to help the discussion. I'm trying to think in general of how I handle this. And I think at least the way I was trained was to remain neutral, which might be my, it's, maybe it's my issue. We're not just trained like that. Yeah, maybe that's limiting. Uh, in PAP, I think you have 
very different approaches in that mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. And there was someone who listened to a case I presented and said, you were very worried about neutrality at the beginning of the treatment of that patient. And then I became more fluid, more flexible, and the treatment moved faster. So I can acknowledge that I'm coming from a place perhaps of not being being a little bit anxious about if I'm doing a good job or not. And therefore, I lean towards neutrality as a cliche. Yeah, as an indicator that you're doing a good job. The less you talk, the better the you are. The less you talk, the better. And that might not be the case with some patients. God, uh, in the U.S., express that. Yeah. So I lean towards being more on the quiet side, and I continue to learn when to be more on the other side, which is more expressive. So that's what I can say right now. That's, so for me, it has been a transition. Because sometimes we do intervene and we go far beyond the uh-huh or the go-ahead mm-hmm. because we're anxious. Yes. Because we might feel powerless. Yes, correct. Especially if the patient is talking about something that is a, a no-win situation. Uh, there is no way out. You know, what can you offer? We cannot offer anything. And sometimes, you see, when you feel like there's no way out, I feel like this is the victory of the transference or the counter-transference. Well, of course, we are now experiencing the hopelessness together, Yeah, which might be a, an experience of solidarity for some, but it might also impair the work. Yeah, because as to a do. psychoanalyst, you have to move in those spaces of despair. Yeah. And at the same time, not be completely blindsided by Blindsided by, by it. This is a difficult job. Well, Freud said that is one impossible job. We discussed that before, didn't we? All the jobs are actually impossible. Well, he said there are three professions. Yeah, parents, governments, and psychoanalysts. Teaching, government, and psychoanalysis. Yeah, but every other job is impossible to do perfectly either. Uh, we have to find the code, because I think he mentioned something specific about why it was. No, I'm very sure that he's saying that. No, he's <laughs> not saying just it's impossible. Uh-huh. I'm sure. And here we go. Here are the complete work of Freud. So Edgar is coming back, meaning he's holding his mic again. So I wonder if I can find it now. So this is in French that I found it. Indeed, in analysis with end and analysis without end. Oh, I'm translating from French. The the title in English is a bit different. So I'm going to translate on the fly. It seems... Almost, however, Mm -hmm. that the analysis is the third impossible, in quotes, job in which you know from the get-go that your success will be insufficient. The other two are educating and governing. So it's not that it's just an impossible work, is that from the get-go. From the get-go, you you know mm-hmm. that your success will not be enough. That's the important part that is often left out. Because in other ways, every job is impossible to do perfectly. But you can do enough. Yes. And as an analyst... And you don't begin the job by saying... That you know you're going to fail. That, that you're going to fail to have a sufficient... <laughs> 
success. Mm-hmm. Because if you build a house, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be sufficient. Analysis is never going to be even successful, sufficient. That's sure. the whole point. Okay, fine. Oh, you yeah. find it? Yeah, in English, straight. Well, well, I say it in English. Right? Yeah, well, something but wrong I mean, with my translation? But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not translating to French, I assure you. <laughs> it almost looks as if analysis were the third of those, quote, impossible, quote, professions in which one can be sure beforehand of achieving unsatisfying results. The other two, which have been known much longer, are education and government. You see, it doesn't say exactly the same thing. So we would need a, a German translator. Yeah, so, well, Tina. Yep. But it says that, you know, we can be sure beforehand of achieving unsatisfying results. Yeah. Yeah. So it's never going to be enough. So, as we mentioned before, this is actually the basis of our podcast. That psychoanalysis does not work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a provocative word. Why are we doing this then? <laughs> well, because it does work. Because it does work. It, it does work, but you can't be safe and just look at the theory and be like, okay, I'm going to build my house. Yeah, I love this example of architecture. I'm going to build it, and I know the laws of physics, the uh, laws of this and that, and this is going to hold for X mm-hmm. amount of time. Psychoanalysis, if you start like that, you're going to hurt your patients. But you're going to hold on to this mystical idea of psychoanalysis, which is a complete dream. It's a fairy tale, just like any kind yeah. of theory. It's a fairy tale you need to know about, but also a fairy tale you need to detach yourself from. Which I think we should instill in younger clinicians. But I think also people want that. Want what? This idea that psychoanalysis is all-powerful. Well, of course. Some people believe in God and other people believe in psychoanalysis. (laughs) So, remind me. So, your last job (laughs) and now... Okay. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) So, and I have seen this happening again and again with younger clinicians. When I say younger, I mean... You mean less less experienced (laughs) clinicians. Uh, And the questions that arise are, how would you tell the patient and what would be the appropriate technique? And so holding on to that as a way to deal with their own anxiety. But we just said like 10 minutes before that Mm -hmm. we should, we think that waiting is better. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I'm telling the person, the younger clinician, you have to wait 15 minutes before. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 15, not 14. Uh, Not 14. (laughs) Everything happens in that minute. minute, Yeah, something will happen. (laughs) (laughs) There is a limit to what we say in in terms of technique. And I think the idea that there is the right technique needs to be deconstructed, you know, which I think is what Theodore Reich, in fact, was saying when he said that the guiding principle of our technique is to be surprised. That is the guiding principle. Mm. Being surprised. If we are getting surprised, something is happening in the treatment. I'm thinking that you can be surprised in many bad ways. (laughs) (laughs) I I acted out in session. I was very surprised. Uh (laughs) Don't do that. Well, well, yes, but that would be a learning experience, I guess. 
Yeah, that an that, awful that could, one, but yeah, <laughs> that could uh, lead you to lose your license. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, one my analyst in the US mentioned to me once it stayed with me that someone he studied with used to say something along the line of, "Whatever happened in session, if you stay seated in your chair, it's gonna be the best answer ninety nine point ninety nine percent of the time." Mm. And I think it was because at the time I was struggling with very difficult patient who I felt like I really wanted to help and I knew that I had to maintain a certain composure, but I could feel also the intense amount of distress and I didn't know what to do. I was like, should I hold the patient? Should I... Yeah, should I touch the patient to feel them mm -hmm. so that they feel supported? Mm -hmm. And that's when my analyst was like, "Yeah, they see it. It's most likely gonna be the best answer." And mm. years after years, yeah, long time after now, he mentioned that. I think that is true. Yeah, I remember who was it? Is it Kohat or is it Winnicott? At some point, he gave one finger to one of his patients. Oh, I don't recall that. And mm -hmm. the patient, it must be a patient who was an analyst too, because it's the, from the patient's point of view, mm -hmm. mentioning that. Like ah. She was known to be disorganized. I think it was a, a, another British psychoanalyst, a woman who was disorganized, who came to therapy with Winnicott. And one day he let down, she was laying down next to him, and he let down one finger, and she explained in the paper how wonderful it was for her that he did mm -hmm. that and i remember we studied that at mpap and the, the, the instructor was like oh yeah he gave one finger why the fuck didn't he give one hand i <laughs> <laughs> didn't say fuck but i think the intention was, the intention was to say fuck <laughs> <laughs> it was in a intersubjective class oh so when i read that i'm like why not but i think with a patient who's very disorganized It's very tricky, even more so. But certainly with neurotic patients, no, it should be okay. Mm -hmm. It should be okay. It should be okay. Like that's a thought I wanted to mention in the podcast is that I find that as me as an analyst, a psychologist, whatever, someone who listens through psychoanalysis, I'm learning more and more to trust my patient's ability to sustain both their life and the work. Mm -hmm. yeah. It has been a learning curve yeah. for me. Uh -huh. I mean, I started my practice working with really disorganized kids, and you really have to be very engaged. Mm -hmm. You you can't just be neutral. Like, it had a profound impact on me, and probably we should talk about that in a future podcast, how those things worked, because I think it's very inspiring, even for individual practices. But yeah, to me... I learn to support my patients more and more through silence and through mm -hmm, and to wait instead of being ahead of them. Yeah. Like the feeling I got was if I'm ahead of them, they will feel safer. That's what you thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I witnessed, especially at your RCC, that with some patients want to be engaged in therapy, but they are so overwhelmed by everything else in their life. Yeah. I still think it can be helpful. I agree with you. It, I think the issue at hand is 
how do we conceptualize the level of organization of our patients so that we can acknowledge when we need to be ahead so that they feel safer? That's why the idealization, you know, if, if we allow them to idealize us, some patients feel safer. And then they stay in treatment. Yes. And there are other patients who we know that they idealize as a defense, but that's a different story. Again, with Winnicott, I remember, I don't know if it's in an article he wrote or in an interview he gave. I think he said something like, if I had to go back in time, he would interpret less. And that stayed with me. Mm -hmm. Because for a very long time, I find that it was a beautiful thing to say, but I could not relate. Because I was like, mm -hmm. no, you need to interpret. You need to be engaged. You need mm -hmm. to show your patients. You follow them. You more actually, you're ahead of them, mm -hmm. and so that they feel heard, they feel supported. And it has always been a, a question for me. But really, in the last few years, and last year certainly, there was a break for me. Actually, it's a different kind of work when yeah. you are ahead of them. Mm -hmm. True. You are depriving them of something. Mm -hmm. You're offering them the sense that you're good you're so clever you're so sensitive mm -hmm. and okay it might help sometimes but actually especially when you are in private practice you get to see i mean you still keep your trcc patients and as long as they want to stay with you but you get to see new patients who are actually who are not as overwhelmed by some very um, practical aspect of life. of life i mean it's not the same to be in therapy when you know you're gonna have food on the table and when you don't correct So I think when you when you don't know that you're going to have food on the table, you might need an analyst who is more engaged. The way I was, that I don't know. I wouldn't bet on that. But more engaged than I am now with, with patients who are financially safe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think? I it reminds me of a statement or a recommendation from one of my supervisors who said, stay away from the grand interpretations. But they feel good, though. Of course, <laughs> they feel good. Oh my goodness! I connected here conflict symptom and the drives, and, and it's <laughs> shiny. And I'm gonna mention that in supervision. Oh my goodness! And, my uh, <laughs> and then the supervisor said, "I stay away from the grand interpretations." <laughs> But that, that's boring. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, mm -hmm, might be more than enough. Actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah. I agree. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for demonstrating <laughs> what you just said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but there is a, I think particularly among the m more classical Freudians, I might be wrong about this, but there is a tendency to the grand interpretations. And then we're trained to present in our final cases, you know, these very nicely developed statements about how I interpreted and the patient responded. And of course, they always respond great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning to be more, this is my own learning process, being vul more vulnerable in my case presentations. That I said this and it backfired. <laughs> <laughs> and I said that and it backfired. And then I said, mm -hmm, or I said com something that was not even an interpretation. And it was one of the best interventions. So I'm, I'm learning to be more humble and acknowledge my vulnerability and my, my limitation, so to speak. Yeah. Well, we don't have much time left, but you see, that's another theme that we've mentioned before, but why not bring it up again? One of the difficulties when you're learning to practice psychoanalysis uh, as a beginner 
is that a lot of case presentations are going to be offered by people who don't want to look vulnerable. Mm -hmm. There is often, not always, but there is often a sense of peer pressure. Yes. A way to brush off the anxiety that we have that our work is still relevant. Mm. We want to look good to others, uh, to our peers, but we might actually be doing a disservice. And um, in that sense, I remember um, something that one of my professors said in France about the th five essays, or how do you say that in English? The five clinical cases. Yeah, uh, the, the clinical and cases. The, the professor was uh, saying, like, don't you guys think there's something off about all those essays? And I think it was the second year, and we were just like in the amphitheater. Ah, I don't know, it's for it, it's good, it's great. And, uh, <laughs> and the guy was like, they all fail, but one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the one who doesn't fail, the irony is that the guy gets killed during the war, I think. <laughs> Isn't it the right man? <laughs> yeah. I can't but recall that. <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing at people dying. Well, give us that. Uh, okay, <laughs> I mean to the irony. And so, I, yeah, in the in the five clinical case, Dora <laughs> is <laughs> a damn mess. Dora was a mess. <laughs> he <That> fails. It was, <laughs> was an he awful puts his mess. Put in the head. Yeah. Boom. Here we go. One, <laughs> two, three, four times. Like it doesn't end. <laughs> being completely out of touch with her. Mm -hmm. uh, Schreiber. He doesn't meet the guy. <laughs> he's like oh that's an interesting book <laughs> let's show what, how paranoia works mm -hmm. okay the wolfman I think it doesn't work either he completely missed the case it's well and little hands was not even it's, it's, he, he never <laughs> was met the, the child he never met the child <laughs> and what our professor said is that his hypothesis and I'm, I want to hold on to that for lack of better uh, possibilities is that he thinks that Freud, when he published those, was more confident mm. that psychoanalysis work. Mm -hmm. And he was confident enough to show situations that were not about successful therapy. That's an interesting proposal, yes. And By the end, of course, Freud was clear that uh, <laughs> this is... <laughs> This won't resolve the the, the world the world problems. Psychoanalysis is not gonna solve the world problem, but mm -hmm. I have to say, sometimes when I'm listening to social debates on the lefty side, of course, it's not gonna surprise anybody. And often I'm like, I wish they had some sense of psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. I wish they could use some of the concepts that we have like projections transfer resistances mm. ambivalence because all those discussions those forums where people don't think with those tools they're not going to go anywhere mm -hmm. agreed I guess this is it for today. But before we leave, I would like to clarify just a few things. First, at the end of the podcast, instead of saying engaged, I should have said active. 
because of course you can be engaged through silence through i would say non-action but just just to point that out also i guess the but we will come back to that in the different podcast but as you can hear our podcast raised the question of should we not use our assumptions and what about our clinical sense this was not the topic of the podcast but this is certainly something uh, to take into consideration to ponder or to add to what we said so as we always say our podcasts are open meaning that this is uh, this is our thoughts at this point and maybe they will evolve and we would like to listen also to our audience and listen to your thoughts comments and questions well thank you for listening mm-hmm and see you in a month, in a month. or so okay bye bye bye